Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Yeah, it's crazy. A lot of Mets fans for most of this season have been like really happy about the research in Mets, but like yeah. unwilling to acknowledge the Braves in their division because they got off to a slow start, just like they did last season. I think it was a, I think it was a little bit of a whistling past the graveyard kind of thing. You know, it was it's just like you're acting a little casual because, because you know, trying not to evince any kind of anxiety or fear. But it's like the fucking Braves, man. Fuck the Braves. I hate them. Hello and welcome to Take Line. I'm your host, Jason Concepcion, flying solo this week. Great show lined up, one that spans the sports spectrum from football, a.k.a. soccer, to football, a.k.a. football. With some NBA in between, we'll be joined by Jake Fisher, senior NBA reporter for Yahoo Sports. He'll join us to discuss the latest transactions, storylines around the association, and then I will reunite with my old co-worker, Kevin Clark, the Ringer's senior NFL writer, discuss the happenings of week four in the National Football League. But first... Joined by super producer Ryan Wallerson to talk some soccer on both sides of the Atlantic and just let me vent my spleen about fucking New York Mets. Let's talk about uh, L.A. winning their second uh, supporter shield in four seasons. Congrats to them winning over the Portland Timbers. We've been waiting for LAFC to kind of get its shit together after a number of, you know, marquee signings uh, that seemed poised to have the team just run up the score on everyone there followed a a, a pretty serious bobble um but it's it appears that that's been solved LAFC sitting atop the table 21 wins four draws eight losses 67 points over rival Austin and congrats to them Ryan any thoughts about LAFC it certainly seems like they are po- like l- listen MLS playoffs you never know you never know what can happen, which I guess is the beauty of the MLS playoff system. Um, but it certainly looks like they're poised to run the table as the MLS season comes to a close. Well, you know, plenty of thoughts on LAFC and definitely a big shout out to the team winning its second supporter shield in four years. Uh, the last team that won it in 2019, they won it behind the MVP season from Carlos Vela when he had like a million goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, this team is way deeper. It's way more dynamic. The goals come from way more directions and they can beat you from so many different positions that I think they're a lot more dangerous going into this playoffs than uh, they were in 2019. You know, it's as you say, right? They were going really well on that seven game win streak. And then they bring in, you know, Dennis Buanga and Christian Tello and Gareth Bale and Giorgio Chiellini. And as they're integrating all these guys into their team, as they're saying goodbye to the guys that helped them go on that win streak, they fall into a streak where they win, I think, only two out of seven. We were talking about them having a historic season and coming out of that rarefied air and falling back toward the pack. But, you know, with this 2-1 win over the Portland Timbers, they've clinched the supporter shield. They did so 
with the first goal for LAFC from one of those new imports, Dennis Buanga, number 99, who, despite the fact that he's had, you know, multiple performances for LAFC before this Sunday's game against Austin, he's always been a positive force on the offense. Like he's been doing a lot of really good things, making really good runs, getting in dangerous positions. That goal that he scored was an absolute thing of beauty, running straight down the sideline, beating people on his own, getting through defenders, nutmegging defenders to beat the goalie. It was a moment of pure brilliance. And frankly, I hope he doesn't score in the finale so that he can go in history with having one goal for the regular season for LAFC and having that goal clench the supporter shield. That's like a pretty hard flex. That's a very, very hard. Let's go across the pond and briefly talk about uh, the EPL where uh, our teams are flying high. My team, Arsenal FC, uh, with a resounding 3-1 victory over their crosstown rivals in the North London Derby, the uh, Tottenham Hotspur uh, squad. They went down to 10 men uh, in the early of second half. I think... I think a valid decision, slightly harsh, maybe as a red card, but like, uh, but an unnecessary foul on uh, Martinelli as he was running back towards his goal. Like, you're not even stopping a break. It, I, I'm fine with it being a red card, obviously, but it puts it put Arsenal briefly four points clear. Now one point uh, clear, uh, top of the table. I, you know, I don't want to get my hopes up too much, but certainly it seems like Champions League football should be in the offing next season. Um, and it's just it's just really amazing to see this team come together after the struggles of recent seasons. They have wonderful uh, young talent all across the uh, all across the pitch. and some real spine now with uh, various introductions. Uh, of Man City castoffs, Zichenko, Gabriel Jesus. Uh, I, I love the fact that the rich got so rich that they had to give away some of their riches, thus enriching my team. You love to see that. Thomas Party is is a rock in the in the center of midfield. Granite Xhaka, after being almost hounded out of the country a few seasons ago, is now like the the emotional and uh, like philosophical leader of the team. Uh, it's just really, really great to see. And honestly, like it, when I look at Arsenal and I think about the Knicks, I think about how manager Mikel Arteta, in order to coach up his young players, get them blooded, get them the experience they need, he knew that he would have to spend wins. He would have to sacrifice wins for experience. And it's something that I hope the Knicks do as they go forward into their 2022-2023 campaign, because look at Arsenal right now. It's it's paying dividends. And your Man City squad <laughs> is so fucking scary. I don't even know how to describe the displays that Erling Holland is putting on on a match-to-match basis. And, you know, it's fun because I've been following I Man City. <laughs> I've been following Man City since, you know, Vincent Company was captain and David Silva and Sergio Aguero were the most dangerous names on the team, right? So I've been eliminated in Champions League by Barcelona more times than I care to remember. I watched them lose Champions League final to Chelsea. I watched them, you know, get basically forget how to play football for one terrible week and it cost them both Champions League and the domestic crown to Liverpool. Like, I've been through it with these guys. So to now just be on straight Terminator mode and have everybody terrified to play us, and, you know, deservedly so, because Erling Holland is FIFA on easy. Like, not, maybe not even easy, maybe even tutorial. He's got more goals than, like, half the league. It's, it's, it's insane. He's got 14 goals. There's no defense 
on the planet equipped to stop him from scoring goals when he decides he wants to score goals. And I'm willing to take that theory and test it against every defense in the English Premier League. So until someone proves me wrong in a, in a moment of import, yeah, even your even your perfect arsenal to this point, I, I'm looking forward to putting our squads against each other and seeing who will <laughs> emerge in first place on the other end of that match. You know, we lost to a Man United and um, a match that I think was a real kind of like wake up call and a, and a chance to like learn and grow and measure yourselves against a, a team certainly that at least has the history um, to to have confidence against this newly improved Arsenal side. But like fucking Man City, it's just all the doubts about whether Holland plays the type of way that Pep wants to play and and some of like the you know the moments in preseason when it seemed like there were mistimed runs and and uh you know the midfield didn't quite understand how to get Holland the ball and maybe was a little frustrated with with the runs he was making that's all fucking gone away forget it <laughs> this guy is a guided missile it's like, I think Zlatan is the guy that you think of because of the size, right? And the and the prolificness of the goal scoring to like compare him to. But at the same time, like Zlatan was, was so tricky on the ball. He had that kind of very Brazilian inflected flair of, of where Holland is just like brute force. He just runs through people, cuts defenses to pieces. Defenders like can't, physically do anything with him because he's gigantic and then when the ball comes to him he just kicks it hard into the goal it's like very it's very simple and you know the best thing about it is it's really really simple because the midfield is filled with the best passers in the world to feed him service of the highest quality the defense is absolutely you know locked down to keep even the best of the rest of the league's attackers to try and keep pace and you know, the goalkeeper's top class, Pep's a genius. The Etihad is half empty <laughs> yeah. most of the time, but hopefully the team wins no matter who shows up. I hope that more people start realizing exactly how special a team they're watching over there in Manchester. But it's going to be an interesting season. Holland scores every 40 minutes or so. That's shocking stuff. I don't know if he'll maintain that pace. I think that there is a coming out party. I'm here. Sure. I don't know if he's going to be able to do this all season. If he is, then he's welcome to score, you know, goals untold. The scary thing for for opposing squads is like, I agree, he has to cool off because this isn't, I mean, he'll set every record at at the pace he's going. He'll set every single record there is to set scoring-wise. fine with that. That said, there's been no hint of how this could stop. Like, I, I don't understand, like, how... You have to foul him. I guess, I guess there's like a, a... a chance that like the officials get some sort of shack kind of uh, mindset with Holland where he's so big that they don't see the kind of physical play and they, they judge it on a different criteria. But I don't see that. I, I think the way that soccer is officiated makes a player with the kind of insane physical tools and skill set of Holland, they make him even more dangerous than he could possibly be because there's only so physical that you could be with him without putting yourself at a, at a real danger of going down to 10 or taking on too many yellow cards. Like, I don't know. I, I really don't know what you do with him. You're right. You're right about the risk, but I do think that the best chance that 
opposing teams have of stopping this prolific scoring clip is just making him wary of the fact that they are willing to do so. Sure. If not to a way that puts them down to 10 men, but maybe a lot of different players, maybe by the 75th minute, 80th minute are playing like three or four players have one yellow card because everybody has the orders. Make sure nobody gets two, but also put a body in front of him if he's on his way. I don't know. I mean, he's going to keep getting these passes. And so he's going to keep using that immense strength and size of his to getting in good positions. I also think that you just have to, you know, like pressing has been such a, has been such a trend in Europe and in the EPL of late, you know, with, you know, um, with the way Liverpool plays, certainly with Pep's influence. I just think you've got to like close the door and lock it and try and get out on the break. And you've just got to play back and deep and just sit there and try and lock down any kind of movement until you get a break. I don't think you can play. I don't think you can play high line up in the face of this Man City team. I just think you can't do it. You can't give them any space to to go in behind you. You can't. Six goals a game until they learn that lesson, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's talk about the Mets. I just want to say one thing about the Mets, who have suckered me again. Listen, the Mets, they're going to be in the postseason. It's going to be a wild card, it looks like now, after leading the NL East for most of the season. uh, They went... And absolutely fumbled the bag against no other than their eternal enemy, the Atlanta Braves, who have been playing like absolutely lights out baseball since June. And I just I don't have much to say, Ryan, other than I can't believe it's it's always them. Why is it always the Braves for the last 30 years? Why is it always them? I knew it was going to be them. I can't believe that I got snookered into caring again. And the Mets had it. They ha- It was there for the taking. This is a th- three-game series. You go in there and you think we close the door. It's in, it's in your hands to do. And they didn't do it. And I feel like this is the millionth time I've seen this fucking movie. And I can't stand it. I hate it so fucking much. I hate the Braves. I just hate them. And we don't have, the Mets don't have a Mike Piazza-like figure who's willing to be like, watch me win it for us. Watch me do it. And that's, it is what it is. I feel like this was the moment where that Mike Piazza figure could have emerged, whether it was Alonzo or Lindor. Somebody could have called Hero and it would have stuck like super glue in this series to stop this sweep from happening because even two out of three in Atlanta and you control your own destiny. Now you're begging them to lose and they're probably not going to, you've given them the inside track of the defending world series champions. You know, it's crazy. A lot of Mets fans for most of the season have been like really happy about the research in Mets, but like yeah. unwilling to acknowledge the Braves in their division because they got off to a slow start, just like they did last season. I think it was a, I think it was a little bit of a whistling past the graveyard kind of thing. You know, it was. it's just like you're acting a little casual because, because, you know, trying not to evince any kind of anxiety or fear, but it's like the fucking Braves, man. It's you're focusing crazy. on the Yankees. You're focusing on the Dodgers. And I'm just like, guys, they're the defending world champions. Like you, you just, that's smoke. That's it. I mean, what's funny is that the 96 Yankees also had to deal with defending World Series champion Braves. But, you know, we, we were able to dispatch oh, yeah, them okay, a little bit more efficiently. 
<laughs> I do wish the Mets the best. I do wish the Mets the best. I hope that they get into the playoffs. It looks like they're going to be facing San Diego, which is a favorable matchup. Yeah, to begin. you like that. At the same time, let's take care of business, please, Mets. Okay, let's move on. I can't fuck the Braves. I hate them. Uh, and up next, a uh, senior NBA writer for Yahoo Sports, Jake Fisher. Buying a master mechanics tool set usually means high prices, higher interest rates, and who knows how many years of monthly payments. But at GearWrench, we don't believe that your tools should take years and years to pay for. So check out Mega Mod Master Sets, the master mechanics tool sets that deliver pro-quality tools, organized storage solutions, an easy-to-use lifetime warranty, and much, much more. All for thousands less than you'd expect. So don't wait. Explore the sets and check availability now. Only at GearWrench.com. The NBA preseason kicked off over the weekend as the calendar gave way to October. Six NBA matchups over the weekend, but the headlines belong to the Phoenix Suns for all the wrong reasons. They have suffered the only NBA defeat in the history of the NBA's global games when they lost to Adelaide off the Australian Top League 134 to 124. There's also been some contract news, some other news around the association. The news never stops there. And to help us discuss all of that is Jake Fisher from Yahoo Sports. Thank you for having me. Great to be here amongst old friends and new. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well, man. So tell us about the Phoenix Suns loss to Adelaide. An absolute fucking shocker. (laughs) Well, look, I mean, things in Phoenix have not been sunshine for a long time. Not a good harbinger of things to come. I mean, it's kind of been reflective of the last three months that they've been having and you go back to DeAndre Ayton's restricted for agency. Yep. You go back to even before that game seven against Dallas at home, yep. a pretty embarrassing <laughs> loss where they had that best regular season record, like you said, and it all was for naught. And Jay Crowder is on some beach, potentially somewhere, not part of the team because yep. he doesn't want to be there. They don't want him there. Like it's, it's really not good. And I think obviously losing to a mid tier Australian team is kind of a nice, funny headline, but I think that's like the tip of the iceberg. It's, it seems like there's a lot of stuff going on beneath the surface that potentially is, is rippling up now that, that we're starting to see. So let's talk about that a little bit. Obviously, the Robert Sarver fallout is continuing to take shape. He has announced that he is moving to sell the team after significant pressure, both internally at the NBA and from advertisers and from his own ownership group and from fans in Phoenix and sports fans writ large. But then Media Day happened. DeAndre Ayton, you just outlined some of the frustrations that have been going on between Ayton and the club regarding his contract or lack of an offer of a contract in the past and his comments about head coach Monty Williams, who notably benched him down the stretch of some very significant playoff games last season, their relationship, certainly if you're reading between the lines, you don't even have to read that closely seems to be icy at best. On the one hand, I'm like, Hey, I get it. We've all worked with people maybe that we don't personally like, and you just get on with it. On the other hand, it certainly seemed like not a good data point in a string of not good data points, the latest being this loss to Adelaide. Yeah, I think data points a great turn of phrase that I like to use a lot in terms of reporting where 
you're just trying to collect data points and also puzzle pieces where you don't know how many pieces are in the puzzle. You don't have a picture on the box of what you're trying to assemble. Trying to collect as many as you can and get those clusters that then you can start putting together the puzzle, right? And the DeAndre Ayton cluster has many, many, many pieces where, look, the Monty Williams relationship that you just talked about, I think is at front and center of that, where Mm -hmm. Phoenix is at this kind of interesting development where they were this fun young upstart team in the bubble right seven and oh and they draw the attention of chris paul the greatest point guard potentially of all time this dogged leader this this winner who also has the style that potentially grates on a lot of teammates and doesn't necessarily have a long shelf life where monty williams was his coach back in new orleans or or they overlapped at some capacity yeah. I, I can't get the, the timelines 100 percent correct off the top of my head right now but from all the conversations i've had that core relationship, Monty and CP being together, working together, trying to uplift each other is, is has been very communicated to me as like one constellation in this very complicated Phoenix Sun orbit where you've got Devin Booker as, you know, he's dating a Jenner daughter and he's his own superstar and he's got his questions about defense and winning and all that type of stuff <laughs> where like it, it's a very dangerous cocktail of all these combustible ingredients and title windows can just close pretty quickly when you don't have all those things aligned. And it does kind of seem, forget about the Robert Sarver stuff, although obviously don't because that's yeah. for all obvious reasons and it should be taken with every grain of sincerity that it has been. Um, but like, that's just a backdrop for all this stuff that is really rifling beneath the scenes or behind the scenes. I'm just throwing all these metaphors out there because it's yeah. just, it's so sensitive and difficult, but like, you got to get everyone going in the same direction in order to win. And they are just not. There's multiple different components involved. And a lot of it comes down to when you win and you have success, which is great. Everyone involved wants to get paid. And that is where a lot of the accounting gets tricky. DeAndre Ayton wanted to get paid. Mikhail Bridges got paid. Kent <laughs> yep. wants to get paid. You can't pay everybody, especially in a team, to bring this back to Sarver. Historically, the Suns and Sarver's ownership group has never been willing to fund the bill. And that I think that's really started to pay. I don't know. It, it, that's really been, I think, the ultimate undercurrent through all this is that paying all these people when you have all the success is not the easiest proposition. One of the things that that I noted about the Suns and their regular season success last season is they have a really unique kind of style of play, which is at the most basic level, they just kind of get the shot that they want and hit it most of the time they're a low rebounding team because they don't they they basically get into their offense and they take a little time to get into it but they get the shot a high quality shot the one that they want and then they make it now the weird drawback of that as we saw like over their really like tortuous and wrenching playoff collapse is that like if they have to go into like a secondary and tertiary kind of like offense if you make them go deeper into their bag that bag is potentially not that deep if you get past that kind of first option which brings me back to like you know they were a well-oiled machine there's grit in the machine now whether it's the relationship between monty and deandre whether it's teams potentially figuring something out with devin booker they obviously were should be a title favorite coming into this season. One of the elite squads. Do, what do you what do you see for them going forward? 
So winning is always the magical elixir that can rise all boats, right? So we'll see if all this just kind of, maybe this Adelaide game was the punch in the mouth that they needed and they go into the regular season. And like you said, they they are this well-oiled machine. It is like clockwork. They beat up on smaller, younger teams that haven't exactly had the experience and they are Phoenix and they do have this vaunted lineup that still can kind of impose their will at times. So that's one possible outcome here. I do think that there's going to be growing pains and I, I, I do expect that not going to be a better year where they're kind of wire to wire the best team in the regular season. Also being that it's just a loaded Western conference. You've got the Clippers back fully healthy in theory, Denver in theory, I mean, other teams like Minnesota and New Orleans are supposed to take one step forward now. These younger groups that have added veteran talent and are a year older and healthier. But with Phoenix in their own independent variable in this Western Conference experiment, like a lot of it's going to come down to what happens with this Jay Crowder trade. I really do think so. Being that everything I've heard, they're looking to move him only for win now, help right now. A lot of teams would trade a first round pick to go get Jay Crowder. That doesn't necessarily help Phoenix in terms of they've got Chris Paul in this twilight of his career. Who knows how much he still has left on his odometer, especially with injuries have seemed to plague him time and again in the postseason. And, you know, there was some fluky COVID stuff that happened in that Western Conference final series. But Jake Crowder has been maybe I'm overvaluing Jake Crowder, but he's been a legitimate fifth best starter on a championship contending team for a decade. And I, I really think. Phoenix and maybe other people are kind of not considering just how easy it is to just swap in Cam Johnson and hope that he can provide exactly what Jay did. And then you're losing what Cam brought off the bench. I think they're going to have to figure out that pecking order and that hierarchy without Crowder being involved because people might forget he joined Phoenix fresh off of that finals run with Miami in the bubble. And he helped Utah for a while and he helped Cleveland in those LeBron days. Like, that is a dog that you go to war with and taking that type of mentality out of that team, especially in a team that has potential floundering possibilities. Yeah. That's something that's getting a little overlooked. Thinking about floundering, are there any players that you see, John Collins is the immediate one that comes to mind for me, that could possibly be on the move if their team all of a sudden realizes, oh shit, we need more. We're not quite what we thought, or maybe this season is a wash. Let's either get out from under the salary and and rearm for the future with assets, or let's move a player and try and improve right now. Who do you see that could potentially be on the move? The players that are on my radar for trades aren't necessarily fitting your description of like, okay, we're not as good as we thought we'd be. Mm -hmm. Let's make a move. Mostly, I mean, I think the way the NBA is operating right now, and it has been the last two, three years, when contracts are coming up or are going to come up, look at Jeremy Grant getting moved from Detroit, or even DeJounte Murray getting traded this summer from San Antonio, being that he's not going to be a free agent in 2023. He's going to be a free agent in 2024. But San Antonio already knows that they're not going to be able to, based off of cap uh, you know, gymnastics, they're not going to be able to pay him the max that he's going to want. And they don't necessarily think he's worth that. So we might as well trade him now when he's still got two years left on his deal. He's at the door to Atlanta. Miles Turner, Jakob Pertl, those types of guys right now. Mm. I mean, obviously, Turner's name has been in headlines all summer with the Lakers flirting whether or not to put two yes. first-round picks on the table to get him and Buddy healed. And Miles Turner's a great player. He certainly would help 
the Lakers in terms of perimeter or, or interior defense and perimeter shooting. One of the few big men in the league who can provide rim protection while also stretching the floor on offense. But if he's going to command $25 million average annual value next summer, that's already accounting the Lakers have to do. So players like him, Jakob Pertl in San Antonio, like I mentioned, I, I believe he's on an expiring deal. You look at Mike Conley's definitely still a name that the Jazz want to trade. Guys are on expiring deals. Russell Westbrook. Yeah. <laughs> people who are anticipating either getting big paydays or teams who are looking to offload big money. Those are the types of names that I'm certainly looking to right now. John Collins, look, everyone thought he was going to get moved this summer. Everything I heard, he wanted to get moved. Atlanta wanted to move him. There just wasn't an actual deal that really made sense for two sides, obviously. Yeah. He, his name is going to be in trade chatter until it's not. And the last name that this comes off the top of my head right now is Matisse Teibel in Philly. Because he's another yeah. guy, extension eligible right now. His rookie deal expires next year. You already saw a nice article in the Philadelphia Inquirer about how hard he's worked this summer, how he's going to come back with a new three-point shot, all that type of stuff. I think... Tybal is another name that, you know, you look back at the February trade deadline and the James Harden talks, he was considered untouchable. Brooklyn cannot have him. Flash forward to June, him and that, that <laughs> yeah. number two pick that Philly had was pretty much offered to every single team in the market. So that's another name I would keep an eye on as well. You're heading to Vegas soon for the NBA Draft Prospect Showcase, the G League Ignite is playing. It's Victor Wimbanyama versus Scoot Henderson. You literally wrote the book on tanking. And I think Wambanyama is the kind of player that you tank the shit out of a season for. Tell us a little bit about why teams are so excited about him. And then two, what does recent tweaks to the structure of both the draft lottery and the NBA postseason have kind of ameliorated the effect of tanking, so to speak, but it still happens. What do you see as like the future of tanking? Yeah, well, it's still happening because Utah's in Utah, Oklahoma City, right. Oklahoma City, Orlando's Orlando, Detroit is in Detroit, right? I think the clearest path for these teams to get these franchise-changing talents is through the draft when you also can get them for seven years of team control. So in respect to Victor Wembanyama, when you have potentially Giannis in Rudy Gobert's body, <laughs> it's a tantalizing prospect. And the thought of doing it a couple years over like OKC's done or like Sam Hankey did in Philly, you can also mitigate your risk of being bad and bad and bad and missing or being bad one year and missing because if you're bad and bad and bad and have all these darts to throw at the dartboard, you can miss in the Philly example on Michael Carter-Williams and Nerlens yeah. Noel and down the list, Joel Okafor, Marco Fultz, whatever, because you got Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. And even when Ben Simmons doesn't work out, you can flip him for James Harden. And OKC, it's kind of the same exact gambit. Utah, it seems like, at least from word I've heard, that they want to do this more of a one-year rebuild. They want to get in, get some prospects and get out. Because they also have looked at what Danny Ainge did in Boston, where Jason Tatum landed with the Celtics based off of that pick swap. Yeah, If you had these other future picks coming down the line, you can start building and getting better, and you have more bullets and more darts in your chamber because you've got other teams' draft capital coming down the line. But to your point as to why it might be more complicated now or why it's not as a direct route that was happening back in the 2014 draft, which was really the center of the book, because yeah. 
that was right when the big three with the Heat were destroying the league, right? Or at least destroying the Eastern Conference where LeBron, Wade, and Bosh were picked one, three, and five, I believe, in, in the, the mm-hmm. top five of that 2003 class. 2014 with Embiid and Jabari Parker and Andrew Wiggins and Randall and Marcus Smart down the list was supposed to be that next great class. This year's class, this 2023 class with Victor and Scoot and the Thompson twins is another one of those classes where you want to get one bite at one of those apples. You know, it's not as direct now because the lottery odds have changed, right? You can't have a a 25% chance if you're the worst team. The bottom three teams have a 14% chance. But that is kind of open the door where if you're the third worst team, you're kind of just as tanky and just as odds, you know, centric on as the worst team. So it, it's kind of a, a matter of perspective. But there is things like now, like the play in tournament where we saw New Orleans and Sacramento just this past trade deadline make moves for CJ McCollum and DeMontis Sabonis, respectively. And it worked for the Pelicans, right? They got into the play in tournament. They got the eight seed. They were a fun, upbeat story, and it works out great. And now Zion Williamson's re signing like that. There's no more rumors of him going to New York. <laughs> it's all hunky dory with the Pelicans. Like that is certainly a factor pushing teams away from tanking. But there's still going to be teams doing it just because of the, the, the premise of getting a young LeBron, a young Giannis yeah. on that team control from the get-go. And if you can build a culture around them where they are going to want to stay, if you're a quote-unquote partner with them, which has been a very dangerous buzzword in Brooklyn, <laughs> yeah. you do it in a way that's organic and sustainable, which is a lot harder to do than it said. That's exactly why I wrote the book it's far more difficult to make it happen when there's people involved and conflicting agendas where the star player wants to do this and the head coach wants to do that. And the GM wants to do that. But at the end of the day, everyone does still agree. If you want to win, you need to have at least one top 10 player, hopefully two. And the easiest route to get them is through the draft. This brings me to the New York Knicks who have been trying to acquire a superstar for essentially the entire existence of the franchise. And it's only in recent years since the addition of Leon Rose that they've been trying to do it in a more systemic, quote, air quotes, smarter way. And on the one hand, it's frustrating because you're watching teams that began rebuilds in the middle of the next fourth rebuild already coming out of their rebuild. Miami has rebuilt the team three or four times in the time that the Knicks have failed to rebuild the team once. Is there a middle road for teams like the Knicks who on the one hand don't want to tank for whatever reason don't they don't want to do it they certainly don't want to do it for multiple seasons and they don't even want to do it for one season and the only time they will do it is when they're pushed into a corner the season's already a wash and then they'll kind of like okay we'll tank is there a middle road of kind of trying to win games and trying to assemble teams on the fly you know like the Daryl Morey's early Rockets, pre-James Harden Rockets, is the only team I can think of that really successfully did this. But is there a middle path to doing that in today's NBA? It doesn't seem like there's one being practiced, right? It does seem like you're either tanking right now or trying to add that one piece. I think the Drew Holiday and the Chris Paul trades to Phoenix and to Milwaukee, they happened at the same exact time, and then both teams met in the finals. I think that kind of set the tone for this this era that we're in right now where every team thinks they're one move away from getting to their goal, whether that's competing for the championship, whether that's moving out of the play-in tournament picture to become a bonafide playoff team, you know, on down the line. I think just like with you know, whether you tank, whether you middle out, like you're saying, whatever path you choose to team build, 
you do need some element of luck involved. You do need everyone to stay healthy. You do need Tyrese Maxey, if you're Philly, to fall to you at 23 yeah. off the top of my head. If you're Indiana, when Danny Granger tears his ACL way back when, you kind of need to get lucky that Paul George is still there. At I think he went 10th in the draft, right? Kawhi Leonard went 13th, where the Spurs had a pretty solid you know, draft night strategy. We're going to go get this guy. Like Those types of moves are there, but they're very far and few between. And I think, ultimately, if you're going to be a team like Miami, like you need to find smart moves on the edges that can prop you up and add very valuable rotation players on cheap contracts. I think that's been far more illustrated in the NFL where like the big money is only being right. thrown now at quarterbacks, one weapon, and then you got to win the game on the line, right? And in the NBA, the money is pretty much put on three big positions. It doesn't matter where they are, but you got three big players and everyone else kind of needs to fit into this mid-level money or minimum money. You need to find guys like Max Struess in order to be able to continue to be good without getting to the bottom. And that's really hard to do. There are, I mean, most of those guys go undrafted. So that means 60 picks came and went and every team had multiple choices usually to say, this guy is going to be a guy who can keep us afloat here for a low salary option. And they all said, no, they all missed him for some reason. Usually those guys have like an athleticism issue or a big weakness that is supposed to be the death knell. They're not going to make it. Turns out they get to the league and they're fine. You know, Dylan Brooks, did yeah. what he did at Oregon. He's doing it in Memphis. You know, Grant Williams in Boston fell, fell to the 20s because of, you know, he wasn't exactly a prototypical modern day player. And now he kind of is a prototypical modern day player because yeah. he just did exactly what he did at Tennessee. You need to find those, you need to hit singles in order to be able to hit home runs in that scenario. But the easiest way to hit a home run is to go to the tank and go get a big guy who can put him <laughs> off the plate and swing for the fences. So it, it, it's a lot easier said than done to just stay in the middle and find these pearls that can that can supplant your superstars. He's Jake Fisher, the newly minted senior NBA reporter for Yahoo Sports. Jake, congratulations on the new gig, and thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Crooked is bringing you the election coverage you love to hate with Crooked Radio. Every weekend in October on Sirius XM Progress and on the Sirius XM app, join our lineup of podcast hosts, candidates, experts, and more as we break down all the issues that matter this November, dive into the conversation shaping our current political climate, and give the only 100% correct opinions in politics. You don't want to miss this. Subscribe now and get up to four months free of SiriusXM. See all for details at SiriusXM.com slash crooked. Week four of the 2022 NFL season is in the books. And as crazy as it may sound, we are already at the old quarter mark of the old NFL schedule when it was 16 games, now 17 games. We're slightly under the quarter mark, but still... Lots of stuff to talk about, including the conversation around Miami Dolphins QB to his second concussion and mishandling of the first concussion back in week three. My former colleague, the wonderful, the talented National Football League reporter, Kevin Clark, senior NFL writer for The Ringer. One of the best to ever do it. To do what? To cover the National Football League, Kevin, in ways both substantive and fun. Hmm. Okay. 
latest news in the saga regarding the Thursday night very uh, public concussion suffered by Tua is that the independent doctor hired by the Players Association has apparently been fired. He appears to be the person who's going to take the fall for this. This brings to mind a whole host of other questions. But first, what is the reactions conversation around the league regarding Tua's apparent second concussion and the fallout following it? Yeah, we have to see what the investigation says. The investigation is ongoing. Both the team doctor and the unaffiliated doctor has talked to the league already. The PA decided to exercise the right to fire the UNC over the weekend. I think it'd probably be a very convenient for all situation if that everything just gets pinned on that guy. And then they just say, well, that's over. Yeah. Good thing we solved that problem. The reaction is one that something needs to be done. I think you saw the reaction yep. from players on the league just saying like, what the hell is going on here? The NFL and the PA have already released a statement on Sunday saying basically there will be change to the concussion protocol. There was a different report over the weekend that somebody had gotten, I guess, on background that basically said that what the PA is pushing for, Jason, is less of a checklist type concussion treatment, like where you're saying, okay, can you do this? Can you do this? Is it like motor? Is it debilitating on the field? Blah, blah, blah. And to have the doctors treat the players like patients, right? Like you would if it was you or I going to the doctor and saying, hey, we have a problem here. I'm very skeptical that can work. Like when they, in the third quarter of a playoff game, I think that the checklists are like, there's something important there. Like there needs to be like bars to clear or else the doctor is going to be, right. get pressured. Like it really is. There is some like varsity blues, like get out there type of pressure in some situations. I don't actually think that happens all the time, but I do think that there have been times and there have been examples in high profile games where guys just sort of hide from the doctors and are just yeah. like, yeah, I'm good. Like I'm just gonna keep my helmet on and just go on the exercise bike or whatever. So I think there needs to be more standards. I don't think you're ever going to get quote unquote normal medical care on a sideline. But I do think that when it's obvious like that, I mean, like to say the first injury was a back injury when everybody saw what it was. We as a football watching people will put up with a lot of things, but don't think we're that stupid. Like there can be a lot of naivety, but there won't be that kind of stupidity. When a guy who's purported to have a back injury never touches his back yeah. in the wake of the apparent injury. Just stumbles around. Yeah, that would seem to be an indicator of something else. You mentioned pressure, and this is my question, which is, it seems to me that any investigation would have to grapple with the query of, was there any pressure applied to this independent doctor? And what role did that play? Because otherwise, you know, like mistakes have already been said that this person made significant, quote unquote, significant mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, then the other possibility is that, okay, this is an incompetent doctor, in which case, why were they hired for this role? Will questions of whether pressure was applied be part of this investigation? And if it is found that that is the case, what would be the outcome potentially there? So definitely that will be something that comes up. But I think that implied pressure is just as important as direct someone ordering the code right and saying, get this guy out there, right? And so I think that if you're going to address any of that, you need to address the sort of the implied pressure that football culture creates. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so I don't like there is an eye in the sky. There already are mechanisms by which a game can be stopped on Sunday night with Cameron Brait. Like a, like a lot of people were saying they thought that, that he was a tight end on the Bucks. 
And Tony Dungy said he was on the sideline. He saw that he was impaired and they just didn't do anything. He went back in the game, caught a pass, I believe. And so like, I just think from all levels, we need to get more comfortable with people just saying like, let's just be reasonable and take this guy out for a series, for a quarter. Like even Justin Reed, the talented defensive back for the Chiefs, passed concussion protocol. Okay, that was the report. He's passed concussion protocol. The NFL said that. The Chiefs said that. And like everybody quote tweeted and was like, yeah, sure, buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we got you. You definitely, you definitely pass concussion protocol. And like that kind of skeptical posturing is actually important, right? Like I feel like for too long, we've all just sat back and said, well, the doc says he's good to go. Like yeah. the doc says a lot of things. And so there should be media pressure. You saw a couple of people say after the Thursday night, the incident, the second game, um, second concussion, if you, if you, if you want to call it that, and I will. People were saying a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. Not really. Like, this guy's going to lose his job, and then they're probably going to move on. Like, however cynical you think this thing can be, it's more cynical. But I do think there needs to be more of a drumbeat, more public pressure. And when we're just, we're talking about this stuff, we're just like, come on. Like, they do, the NFL, somebody explained this to me a couple months ago, and I, I haven't stopped thinking about it. Like, the NFL's biggest fear on these things is the people who don't normally cover football start covering football, right? right? Like NPR, Good Morning America. You know, all of a sudden, Gail King's making a call saying, anybody uh, anybody I can talk to about this piece? We're doing a piece. It's Gail King. Like, Goodell doesn't want the Gail King text. She's texting Elon Musk, apparently. Like, she's trying to get that story now. You know, maybe she's trying to get the concussion story. That, to me, is the NFL's worst fear and as far as media goes. And that is, we're edging towards that every time something like this happens. You mentioned pressure and some of those tweets saying, oh, people are going to get fired for this. I had the same reaction, which is, you know, Mike McDaniel, head coach Mike McDaniel, has been absolutely stern and strong on not even looking in the rearview mirror. I have no doubts that what we did was correct. And, you know, the doctor cleared him. Like, it's a back injury. I'm not, you know, I'm paraphrasing now. But there's almost no world where someone loses their job, it seems to me, because this structure of the independent doctor is such a wonderful failsafe. We don't even know his name. Yeah. The guy doesn't even exist. It's just like, oh, yeah, that guy, he's gone. Like, what guy? That guy, you know, that guy. Like, yeah, no, it's a perfect, it's the perfect fall guy. There are several teams right now that are three and one in the NFL, Philly being the only unbeaten team. They are Kansas City, Miami, Buffalo, Dallas, Green Bay, Minnesota, and the Giants. Why are the Giants the best of those? <laughs> <laughs> I went to a Giants game last week. It was uh, the second game I've been to as a spectator since I joined the ringer. It was my wife's second ever NFL game. Oh, wow. Yeah. Your wife is one of the great reporters, legitimately one of the great reporters. Yeah, no, that, that part is real. I'm not one of the best ever to do it. She is. She's one of the great reporters currently working in our country. Big NFL fan? Is she like an NFL person? No. Yeah. No. She doesn't really get any of it. I mean, she gets like the machinations of it. Yeah. One time went to a Nets, this is how my wife's brain works, went to a Nets magic game and I got a program like the ones they hand out at the front and she kept referring to it as a playbill. <laughs> and I think that's correct. It should be called a playbill. And then the second part is first time we went to an NFL game, we went to a Chargers game because Bill Simmons wanted me to like do a column from there. So we were sitting like the 10th row of this Chargers Browns game when they were playing in the Galaxy Stadium. Remember that? There's like 20,000 people there. 15,000 of them are Browns fans. It just seems so ludicrous. And like in the middle of the third quarter, my wife was like, I don't mean to be weird, but does this game count? And I was like, that is a wonderful question. That's a wonderful question. She also one time went to, a, just by, because I was traveling, <laughs> had to work. I had to drop her off at a Steelers 
training camp practice because I had to go do something on the field. And she just sat there watching The Good Wife the whole time. (laughs) And then she texted me midway through and she was like, again, like, I'm just trying to understand, like, what are these people around me watching? And I was like, I that's a great question. Just that's a big picture philosophical question about football. Like, why on August 3rd are we watching Ben Roethlisberger like kind of go through routes on air? I don't know. It's, I wondered at myself. Why am I doing this? It's because people love football, Kevin. But again, so the Giants are clearly at the bottom of this list of three and one teams. Um, that said, as a Giants fan and a Giants watcher, I struggle to understand how they're three and one. How are the Giants three and one, and how sustainable is this? Daniel Jones says three touchdowns and two interceptions on the season. You know, what does this mean? Okay, so a couple of things. They beat a pretty good Titans team in week mm-hmm. one. So I don't want to say it's empty. They did beat a bad Panthers team. Matt ruled on his way to getting fired. They beat a bad Bears team yesterday. They should have beaten the Cowboys. That was the game I was at. They should have beaten the Cowboys. They should realistically have the chance to be 4-0 right now, okay? I'm surprised at this. I thought, so those guys came from the Bills. Brian Dable and Joe Shane, the new GM and coach, came from the Bills. And the Bills, even though they made the playoffs in McDermott's first year, they really took a big step back. Like, they took the biggest dead cap salary charge in history. They were basically just like, we're going to flush a lot of this, these contracts down the toilet and just start anew. And so I thought they were actually going to waste it, almost kind of like what the Bears were doing. But apparently they've got enough talent. Like Daniel Jones is okay, and Brian Dable is a good enough quarterback guru to to get him doing something. He, He got pressured as much as any quarterback in the league against the Cowboys. That stinks. But I think generally they're a decent enough team. They crushed the draft. You know, Kayvon Thibodeau is back. Saquon Barkley seems to be an above average running back again, which is a nice sight to see. So I just think that if you're competent, you can beat bad teams. And it's funny because Ron Nair, who is one of our Slow Newsday producers, mm-hmm. he's a Giants fan too. And he, we were just talking about that. And he was like, we didn't used to beat the bad teams. You know, you can, you can serve as sort of a Mendoza line where you do everything competently and you beat teams like the Panthers and the Bears and the Titans when they're sleepwalking through. Should have beaten the Cowboys if you're throwing in those guys in that bucket. But I'm just saying, it's going to get rough because the, the Packers, Ravens, Jaguars coming up. Maybe they win one of those games. But like if you do, listen, the NFC is wide open. Like nobody's that good. And so I wouldn't be surprised if if these guys snuck into a wild card spot. You do a lot of work thinking about, you know, obviously NFL is about organizations, both on the fields, the way teams strategize and plan, the way they organize themselves in terms of the actual team structure and the coaches and the executives who put together the teams. You know, a lot of the conversations around the Giants as they were looking for their new executives and head coaches to lead the team was about, you know, kind of the chaos at the top, how Mm -hmm. opaque the decision-making structure was. Who's doing it right now? Who are organizations that you look at, whether it's reflected on the field or not, where you go, that will pay dividends at some point. That's the way to do it. They're doing it right. Great question. Because in theory, like parts of the Jacksonville Jaguars, for instance, Doug Peterson, Mm -hmm. Trevor Lawrence, the draft hall that was there, that speaks to me. But their GM is the guy who ruined the 49ers, basically ended that whole era prematurely, drafted a bunch of bad players, Trampalki. And so I think there's a ceiling on it, right? You know, I thought the Colts were good until this year when I realized they were a bad team. Sometimes it just doesn't happen for you. It was funny because I made this analogy last year. And I was reading a um, Esquire magazine last year, and it was Tim McGraw was doing the What I Learned. And he had this line in there that I think about <laughs> a lot where he was like, you have no idea how I'm going to land this plane, right, Jason? I, I don't know. That's why I'm so excited. He had this line that was like, the one thing I learned about fame is you can have the look 
You can have the songs, you can have the stage presence, and it just doesn't happen for you. Mm. It just doesn't happen. You know, he's seen it a million times. And sometimes it'll be like the Colts do everything the right way, draft two all pros in the same year, but you don't have the quarterback, it doesn't all come together. Frank Reich at some point just needs to deliver or else he's not going to have a job anymore. So it's really interesting. Like, I do think that the Giants are doing it right. They're approaching it. They're not taking big swings. I really like it, but that's no different to me than what the Colts did. That's no different to me than what the Dolphins did four years ago. The Dolphins are a complete mess now as an organization, but they're winning games. But when you looked at what Brian Flores and Chris Greer were doing four years ago, like, I love that. And so that, to me, I mean, the Giants are in the mix. The Eagles are certainly, the way that they were bad on with intention, almost a little Sam Presti-ish, you know, yeah. where they're just like, okay, we know what we're doing. We're going to get draft capital. The Eagles are going to make the playoffs and be in the mix for a bye. And they also have a top five pick coming because they have the Saints pick and the Saints can't win a game. So that to me, I think the Lions with Brad Holmes and Dan Campbell will get there eventually. I don't know anything about the Bears. Like, honestly, I just don't know <laughs> what, what the plan is. I honestly just don't know. Like, I don't know. They've got they've got a second year quarterback and they're just like, yeah, whatever. Like the whole thing is you're supposed to maximize your quarterback and they didn't really do anything with that. And so, yeah, so those are the, I'm like, the Panthers, the Panthers are a mess. Like, they, they got to start over at coach. Maybe the Falcons are doing something good. But, I mean, it, it's an exceedingly rare group, and it's hard to judge. And even if you stick your neck out and say, this team's doing it right, it ends up not, yeah. like, the Chargers give good press conferences, but, like, meanwhile, half their team is hurt, and they, they don't go far and forth down anymore. Like, it's a very weird situation. I mean, it's a little bit like basketball where there's probably GMs and coaches in basketball, Jason, where you yeah. meet them and you're like, this is the smartest guy I've ever met. Yeah. And then they just don't get the lottery luck or somebody leaves as a free agent or they're the guy that they were counting on tears his ACL or his Achilles or whatever. But like, and, and it just doesn't happen. So it's always a hard thing to gauge. Finally, you mentioned the Eagles. Eagles fans are overrepresented at my former workplace, your current workplace, the ringer. Yes. How sustainable is this? They're flying high, you know, a historic start for them. The last remaining undefeated team in the NFL. What has allowed them to do this and how far can they take it? So I want to ask you a question. Sure. Because I was thinking about this this morning. Why are Eagles fans so represented in media I don't know. Especially our circle of media versus Steeler fans who really like the Steelers, are like one of the most popular teams in the world. And they seem unbelievably not online. <laughs> and I only know a few of them relative to the 300 Eagles fans I know. It's a good question. Ryan, our producer, Ryan, super producer, Ryan, currently on the ones and twos for this podcast is a Steelers fan. I think part of it is that Pittsburgh is a very insular place that not a lot of people try and leave. Yes. People love Pittsburgh. It has a culture all its own, a language all its own, even within the culture of Pennsylvania. And I think people there stay there. Whereas Philly, you get a lot of people. It's at the crossroads of the Northeast, you know, as part of the New York Metro, New Jersey area. And I think that there's a lot more osmosis, a lot more movement of people. And I think because of that, you get a lot of Philly people going out and see other spaces. That's my back of the envelope theory. That's a fascinating point. Also, Pittsburgh is, is more Midwestern, yeah. which is less represented in media. And I would also say that I talked to somebody in Pittsburgh media like in the last year or so, and they said that like, if you grow up and you want to be a sports journalist in that area in Western Pennsylvania, the be all end all for you is to cover the Steelers. Mm -hmm. That's it. 
You don't yep. want it. Like if they went to the top stewards writer and like, hey, man, you want Adam Schefter's $9 million a year insider job? <laughs> yeah. They'd be like, oh, I don't know. Like viewers practice on Wednesday. I'd really like to be there. Deontay, you know, the, the Chase Claypool looks good. You know, yeah. like the, the, I'll just I'll just take the 90000 And so there's that. How sustainable is this this Eagles thing? I mean, for the year, their schedule is so easy yep. that if it isn't sustainable, we're not going to find out till January. Like, they're going to win games. This is not going to be like a Cardinals 2021 thing where they lose six in a row and we're like, what's up with them? Like, no, they're a better team than that. They have the system set up better. The division is easier than that. The wheels are not going to come off anytime soon. And so I'm intrigued to see it, but it is sustainable for the 2022 season. They're going to be a division winner, they're going to have a home playoff game. Jalen Hurts is probably, if you're talking about, not probably, if you're talking about the guys who are going to be there in the middle of January, you're talking about Aaron Rodgers, yep. Matthew Stafford, that crew, Tom Brady, Jalen Hurts not that level. But first of all, you get, you know, the roster differences are such that the Eagles will have a better 53-man roster than some of those teams. Second of all, like weird stuff happens. And so yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if they make the Super Bowl. Um, probably be surprised if they won the Super Bowl. But I, you know, the damn Bengals made the Super Bowl last year. Like we have to stop being surprised <laughs> about what an upstart franchise can do. Like this is really, was, I did a Matt LaFleur piece a couple weeks ago. And in it, Sean McVay told me that he told Fleur that like the NFL playoffs now are like Mark Madness. And it's not about the best team winning. It's about the best team that three-hour window winning. And you kind of have to know how to coach to those three-hour windows, right? And so you kind of don't know who's a fraud and who's not in that department until you get to mid-January. That's also why I think the Packers are still going to win the Super Bowl is mm. because of thinking about it. And they've got March Madness brain. So I'm intrigued to see what happens between those teams because I really do think there could be some massive differences. He is Kevin Clark, senior NFL writer for TheRinger.com. Kevin, thanks for joining TakeLine. Thanks, buddy. That's it for us. Follow and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And check out my pop culture and entertainment podcast, X-Ray Vision, which comes out every Friday. Goodbye. Take Line is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Ryan Wallerson and Zuri Irvin. Our executive producers are myself and Sandy Gerard. Engineering, editing, and sound design by the great Sarah Dibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. And our theme music is produced by Brian Vasquez. Mia Kelman is on the Zoom for Vibes, and the vibes are fantastic all the time. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Bottom up, up, up. Bell one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 12 31 24. Excludes tax, must opt in rewards.